Now, the passage that we're looking at is Luke chapter 21. And Luke chapter 21 uh, is, is a very interesting passage, and we'll talk about why so in a moment. But it's also a very important passage. These are words of Jesus spoken just, just days before the cross, right at, toward the end of his earthly ministry. And he's, he's trying to prepare Peter, James, and John, and the others for what they're going to experience in the world once Jesus is gone. And notice uh, there was a question that prompted some of what Jesus said. Luke chapter 21, verse 7, Teacher... They asked him, and we're going to focus on the end of this. We're going to read through verse 19. We're going to focus on the last few verses. But I want you to get the context. Verse 7, teacher, they asked him, so when will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Then he said, he meaning Jesus, watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is near. Don't follow them. When you hear of wars and rebellions, don't be alarmed. Indeed, it is necessary that these things take place first, but the end won't come right away. Then he told them, nation will be raised up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be violent earthquakes and famines and plagues in various places, and there will be terrifying sights and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to bear witness. Therefore, make up your minds not to prepare your defense ahead of time, for I will give you such words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will even be betrayed by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends. They will kill some of you. You will be hated by everyone because of my name. But not a hair of your head will be lost. By your endurance, gain your lives. Now, this passage is called the Olivet Discourse, the Mount of Olives, the place where Jesus gave this teaching. It's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, Earl Ellis, who is one of my New Testament professors and a renowned, world-renowned professor, said that this is probably the most debated passage in the Gospels scholarly debated. And the reason is, it's the prophetic nature of this passage. Uh, at some points, if we read the full Olivet Discourse, Jesus would be speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple just 40 years after this. But in other places, he's obviously talking about the end times and the second coming of Christ, which is yet to happen. And so it's sometimes difficult to know when you read about wars and rebellions and 
and, and some of the particulars of this text. Is he talking about what's going to happen in 40 years when Jerusalem is destroyed? Or is he talking about the end of time? In both situations, there is going to be persecution and suffering. And uh, it will often be very personal. It will come from our own families. That was true then. It will be true in the future. It's true right now, by the way, in many places. Right now, in Nigeria, most every week, there are people being, uh, are being killed for Christ in Nigeria and many other places around the world. Uh, I don't know if you know this. You may because of your personal connection. But in China, where we once had hundreds and hundreds of missionaries, we have zero right now. Why? Because they kicked them all out. There's persecution going on right now quite severely in some parts of the world. And so some of the scholarly debate about this text is, is he talking about the end of times or is he talking about when Jerusalem was destroyed 40 years after Jesus' time on this earth? And so it requires some humility as we look at the details of this text. G.K. Chesterton had a good line about that. Chesterton, who was really good with words, said, uh, it's the fool who tries to get the heavens inside of his head. The wise man tries to get his head into the heavens. <laughs> and, and that's true. We're, we don't have to understand everything about the future or even the present. What we have to know is what we do, do we need to know and what do we need to do in order to be right with God and get our head into the heavens one day. Now, as I mentioned, I really want to focus on the last few verses, but I want to mention a few things that are really important uh, from the passage we read. One of which is, and, and notice the personal nature in verse 12. Before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. Persecution is a fact of life. It's, a, it, it's been with us for 2,000 years of Christian history. In some, some places, it erupts with vigor. In other places, it's not quite as profound or as difficult. But and it's very personal. The way Jesus says it, they will lay their hands on you. It's very personal. But then in verse 13, he says, this will give you an opportunity to bear witness. Of course, we saw that with the very first martyr of the church, Stephen, who was stoned to death, you might remember, in Acts chapter 7. But before he was stoned to death, he bore a powerful witness for Christ. And beginning with Stephen and throughout history, there have been those who have been martyred while bearing a powerful witness for Christ. I love that word opportunity, by the way. The kingdom of God expands on the basis and, and through opportunity. See, when you do vacation Bible school, you're giving your kids opportunity for a solid week to hear about Jesus and to sing those great songs and to be presented the gospel. And that concentrated five days of teaching, and it, 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 it's an opportunity for kids to come to faith in Christ. The same way with youth camp. The same way with sending missionaries. The same way with going yourselves as missionaries. Always providing opportunity. If you look around the world where the church is today, it's largely there because someone took opportunity to go there and share Jesus. And I'll just give you one brief example. William Carey. Because William Carey initiated what we call the modern mission movement. He was a British Baptist. He went to India in 1793. Started this flood of hundreds and hundreds and eventually thousands and thousands of missionaries leaving Britain and 
the United States. Adoniram Judson was the first American missionary. He was a Baptist and you know, went to Burma uh, in 1813, 1814. But it's interesting that William Carey went to India. Why did he go to India? Because the British had been going to India for almost 200 years. William Carey didn't have to build a ship or buy a ship to sail to India. He just got on a ship that was already going to India. In fact, the British were basically in control of India by the mid-1750s, and it was 40 years later that Carey got on this ship of opportunity and went to India. And that's largely how the church has been spread, the gospel has been spread. In fact, even the Catholic Church, where the Catholics are today, it's where Columbus went, and Magellan, and Pizarro, and Cortez, all of those explorers that you learned about in school, wherever they went, they took priests with them. They took missionary evangelists, Catholic priests, Jesuits and others who went to plant the Catholic Church. And so where you see the Catholic Church today, it's where those explorers went. They all had priests with them. And they went to try to Catholicize and Christianize the world as best they understood. My wife and I were on the west coast of India a few years ago in the state of Kerala, and it's interesting, in Kerala, on the southwest coast of India, there's a lot of Catholic churches there. Catholic churches in Kerala. Why? Because that's where Vasco da Gama landed in 17, or 1497 or 98, and he was a Catholic, and, uh, from Port, and, and they planted Catholic churches there 500 years ago. So I say all of that to say, the king providing opportunity. One of the things that provides opportunity for witness is persecution, is what Jesus said. And then in verse 15, he says, I will give you such words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. In other words, uh, when you're in the midst of persecution, don't worry. If you know me, I'll give you, uh, Jesus himself will tell you what to say and what to do. That's a powerful truth. And one final thing is in the 16th verse. You will even be betrayed by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends. They will kill some of you. Most persecution doesn't come from governments. I mean, it can. China, others. But often the most damaging and difficult persecution comes from people's families. And I've met a lot of persecuted people over the years. Uh, one, uh, KK Alavi, he was a man that we met in India, and, and he, became, he was a, raised a Muslim, and he became a Christian. But his dad, his dad beat him severely. His dad chained him for six weeks and tried to get him to recite the Muslim creed, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. His dad not only beat him, but then he took pepper and ground pepper into his eyes and into his wounds, trying to get him to stop from reading the Bible and flirting with this person called Jesus. It was his dad. Went to Kyrgyzstan, and my translator there was a young woman named Venera. She was a beautiful 19-year-old girl who had been beaten to a pulp by her dad because of her Christian faith. 
Probably you, some of you could tell testimonies like that as well. Persecution often has, and by the way, I was in a, one of our churches not so long ago in which a student came up to me he, at Christmas. He said, I got kicked out of the house at Christmas. He was a brand new Christian and he went home at Christmas and he announced his faith and I don't know how he did it. Maybe he was, maybe he said, mom and dad, you're going to hell <laughs> or whatever. I don't know what he said, but whatever he said or because of his faith, they, they said, out of, he they kicked him out at Christmas. So that kind of thing happens here as well. A husband and a wife, one of whom gets saved, the other doesn't. Sometimes there's persecution there. It's very, very personal. But what I really want to talk to you about, what I think our kids need to know, and discipleship needs to be focused on this question, is Jesus worth it? Is he worth suffering for? Is he worth sacrificing for? Is the risk of following Jesus worth it? I don't remember that being pressed upon me when I became a Christian. Maybe because there wasn't any fear in Whitefish, Montana, where I grew up, that if you knew Jesus, that uh, the world was going to turn against you. But the world in which our kids and grandkids are growing up, they're having to make decisions like that and confront things like that. In other words, it is increasingly a risk to know God and to follow Jesus. And we have to help the kids in the church, in VBS and in youth camp and other places, know that Jesus is worth the risk. Now you think about it, as I mentioned, all through history, it's been a risk to do what God wants us to do. In fact, let me give you some examples. All through the scriptures you see this. In 1 Samuel chapter 24, anyone who sought to follow God, at some point they were going to confront whether they did what God, they believed, called them to do and take the associated risk. In 1 Samuel chapter 14, I'm just going to read probably one verse, but it's a great story in which Jonathan, the son of King Saul, they're out fighting Philistines and Jonathan's with his armor bearer and his dad's under a tree and the other soldiers aren't really out pushing the fight against the Philistines. And so Jonathan decides to do it. And there's about 20 Philistines uphill from him and it's just him and his armor bearer and he decides that he thinks God may want them to go fight the Philistines and he sort of throws out a fleece to, to the Lord and said, if they call us to come up, we're going to go up. If they tell us we'll come down, we'll stay where we are. But this is what, this is what uh, Jonathan said about that situation. In verse, uh, verse 6 of, of chapter 14, 1 Samuel, he said, perhaps the Lord will help us. Nothing can keep the Lord from saving whether by many or by few. Now, I think the key statement there is, perhaps the Lord will help us. He had a sense of certainty 
that they were to take the fight against the Philistines, but he was uncertain as to what would happen to him in the midst of the fight. Would the Lord help him prevail and therefore survive? Or would he be one of those killed in battle? Which eventually Jonathan was killed in battle, by the way. But not this day. This day he prevailed in battle. From this and a couple other passages we'll look at, one of the things we learn is uh, the Lord wants us to live with a sense of uncertainty about how our life is going to end. He wants us to have a great deal of certainty about our relationship with Jesus, the fact of the resurrection, the fact of, of the cross and what the cross meant, the fact of the second coming of Jesus. There's some things about which we can be absolutely certain. And in our discipleship of kids and of each other, we need to emphasize those things of which we can be absolutely certain. There is a God. He created the heavens and the earth. He sent His Son to die on the cross for us. Who He was raised from the dead on the third day. Of these things, we can be certain. But how our life is going to end on this earth, we don't know. When you send your children overseas to do missions, you don't know. When they go teach in a certain public school or a university or whatever, you don't know exactly how things are going to go for them. And apparently, that's the will of the Lord for us, to live with that sense of uncertainty about our life on this earth in the midst of certainty that in the end it'll be all right. Jesus is worth it. Now another example from the Old Testament is from the book of Esther. And you remember the story of Queen Esther, a Jewish woman who married the king, became the queen, but the Jewish people had an enemy, Haman, and Haman determined that he would destroy all of the Jewish people. And Esther's uncle, Mordecai, told her that she needed to go and confront the king and try to save the Jewish people. But it was illegal to confront the king if he didn't ask to be seen by you. But here was Esther's response in Esther chapter 4 and verse 15. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. And she went. And she told the king. And she did not perish. But Esther was willing to take the risk. Life in doing what God wants us to do is a risk. And Esther determined that the risk was worth it. If I perish, I perish. She had some sense of wisdom from God that she was doing the right thing, but she didn't quite know how it would all turn out. Because, after all, some do perish. 
Some live, some don't. And with our kids and with our own lives, there are things about which we can be certain and there are other things about which we can't. Maybe it won't turn out so well for us in this occupation or this job or this city or this Maybe God leads me there and gives me the words to say and I'm a witness. He provides me the opportunity to bear witness. But maybe in bearing witness, I become like Stephen and not like Esther. Really, just this week in talking to youth pastors, I've been burdened by the fact that we need to help kids understand this truth. If they think life is going to turn out well and fine and smooth and good because they know Jesus, they need to be taught otherwise. It may not. You're going to confront things. You're going to be in situations in which you're going to have to make a choice. Is it the Lord? Or is it my political career or my business career or my whatever it might be? my friendships. I was listening to a guy this week. This was not in person. This was on the news. It was interesting. They were interviewing this guy, and he made a change in his views. Interestingly, this guy is not a Christian. He's a homosexual, actually, a practicing homosexual. But he changed his political views, and he said, I lost every friend I have, everyone. Everyone. And, by the way, he lost his job because he changed his political view. He's not even a Christian. But he was willing to say what he believed, and he lost his friends, and he lost his job. I just think increasingly that's going to be true for our kids. It may be true for many of us. Living out our faith is a risk. And the question is, is it worth the risk? Apostle Paul thought it was. One more example from the New Testament, and we could go to many, many examples in the New Testament. But in Acts chapter 21, the Apostle Paul is going to Jerusalem. And in chapter 19 of Acts, the Holy Spirit told Paul, everywhere you go, uh, you will suffer. Everywhere I send you, the Holy Spirit told him this, you will, you will get hurt. And so in Acts chapter 21, Paul's on his way to Jerusalem. And I'm going to read these four or five verses. In verse 10... After we had been there a number of days, they were in Caesarea on their way to Jerusalem. We, meaning Luke, who wrote this, and a few others with Paul. After we had been there for several days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. He came to us, took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet, and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, 
Both we and the local people pleaded with him, Paul, not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul replied, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Since he would not be persuaded, we said no more, except the Lord's will be done. And, as you know, Paul went to Jerusalem. Agabus was a prophet. The text says he prophesied in the Holy Spirit. He did. Exactly what he said would happen would happen. Paul was bound. He was captured. But it was God's will that he was bound and captured, as it turned out. They could all agree on that, by the way. They all agreed, let the Lord's will be done. So Paul was bound. What happened when he was? Well, he got to testify before the Roman governors, Felix and Festus, and before King Agrippa, the king of Israel. Then they put him on a ship and sent him to Rome, where he testified before Caesar in Rome. It was part of God's plan to use that captivity for Paul to share with kings and Caesars the gospel. The point being... It could be, if you choose to do something and someone says, if you do that, (laughs) you're going to get hurt. If you go to this place, if you say this thing, you're going to suffer for it. You might get fired, you might get hurt, and they may be exactly right. It doesn't mean that's not what God wants you to do. You have to know, as Paul did, what the Holy Spirit is telling you to do. Our kids need to be discipled to know they need the Holy Spirit of God at work in their life. They need a relationship with Jesus that is so tight that they can hear from God regarding specific situations in their life. I fear that one reason we see the church weak and weakening in America, and by the way, we're not heading in the right direction. The church is not. Southern Baptists are not. We're not reaching more people. We're reaching fewer people than we have in our lifetimes. There's a lot that's not going right, in my opinion, and the numbers all bear this out. I think bad, bad, poor discipleship may be one reason why. We think knowing Jesus and doing the right thing should bring us peace, prosperity, health, and wealth. And No, maybe not. Oh, in the last 50-year bubble, maybe more so, but in the future and in the present with our kids and grandkids, probably not. Now, the discipleship question that they need to ask and answer is, is Jesus worth it? Is he worth it? That's a question you and I need to answer for ourselves. Whatever it is you might be facing right now, and some of you, I assume, are facing things like this, on the job or somewhere, and the question that you have to ask is, is Jesus worth it? It's not a new question. And by the way, Jesus provides the answer in the text. If you go back to to Luke chapter 21, verse 18, here's, here's why we can say Jesus is worth it. Verse 17, first, he says, You will be hated by everyone because of my name. Because of Jesus, you'll be hated. But 
not a hair of your head will be lost. Which means you won't be damned and sent to hell. You won't be removed from the presence of God forever. They may persecute you, they may kill you, but not a hair of your head will perish, not a hair of your head will be lost. You will, in the end, by your endurance, you will, in the end, be saved. Yes, Jesus is worth it. One of my favorite I think this most powerful story is that of Richard Wormbrand. Some of you know Voice of the Martyrs, that ministry founded by Richard and Sabina Wormbrand. He was a pastor in Romania when the communists took over, Nikolai Ceausescu and those thugs. And when they did, they got all the Christian leaders, like 4,000 people, into one big hall. And these communist thugs basically mandated that these Christian leaders submit to this new communist system. This is in, I think, 1946. And Richard Wormbrand and his wife were in the room. And one by one, Christian leaders basically acquiesced. And Sabina turned to her husband and said, they are spitting in the face of Jesus. Go wipe the spit from his face. And Richard Wormbrand said, you will lose your husband if I do. And Sabina said, I do not want a coward for a husband. And so Wormbrand stood up and said, there is no king but Jesus. I bend my knee to none but him. And for that crime... He was placed in prison, solitary confinement, for something like 12 years. His wife was told that he was dead. By the way, she was in prison for a couple of years. They had one child. Friends took care of their child while they were both imprisoned. Eventually, their case became so famous that they were just exiled from the country, eventually making their way to the United States where they founded Voice of the Martyrs. On one occasion, Wormbrand was teaching children. And he was teaching them what it means to be a Christian. And on the last class, instead of meeting at the church, they went to the city zoo. And he took them to the lion's cage at the city zoo. And he said, your fathers in the faith have been fed to beasts like these. You will not be fed to lions, but you will deal with men who can be meaner than lions. Knowing this, which of you will follow Jesus? And Wormbrand said, every boy and girl, with tears streaming down their face, said, I will. I will. That's the world in which we're living and sending out our kids. And they need to know that Jesus is worth it. And you need to know that Jesus is worth it. There may even be someone here this morning who hasn't yet made that determination in their own heart and mind. Maybe you're struggling with something right now, at school, at the job, and you need to get it settled in some way. And I don't know what the answer is. God does. 
I used to do a Bible study at Olympia at the state capitol, and we have another man doing it now. We did it for the elected legislators, and I started it in the first year. I had one faithful man, one faithful man. And some days I'd have two or three, but I went 5 o'clock every Wednesday morning, I think it was. I can't even remember the man's name. It's been about eight or nine years ago, but he was your legislator from here. <laughs> he wasn't a member of Richland Baptist, but he was a, de a, a dedicated Christian. I remember him saying, when I see the dome of the Capitol, I get physically sick. He said, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. He said, it's the darkest place I've ever been the capital of Washington State. <laughs> and I'd pray for him every day and meet with him every week. And, and uh, so it's not just kids. It's people like that <laughs> who are confronting darkness and evil and wickedness in high places. Maybe that's you on your job in business. And maybe today is the day you need to determine Jesus is worth it. BJ's going to be here. We're going to sing a song. By the way, the song we're going to sing, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus, was written, if you look in the hymn book, by a Garo Christian from Bangladesh. The Garo people were from Bangladesh. And uh, it's an anonymous hymn. But what we know of the man was that the hymn is, is autobiographical. Though none go with me, I still will follow. He was a man who followed Jesus when no one else did, in his family or his tribe. And the song came from that experience. I have decided to follow Jesus. We're going to sing that song. It may be that one of you will decide to follow Jesus this morning. BJ will be here. Scott's going to come and lead us. I want to pray for us. Let's stand together. And after I pray, we're going to sing and you come. Father, we are grateful for Jesus and for the fact that Jesus is worth it. Many of us, the vast majority, I would assume, in this room believe that Jesus is worth it. But Father, there may be some here who are struggling with that question. Maybe some who haven't yet followed Jesus at all, haven't yet said yes to him, yes to his cross, and yes to his resurrection. Father, may today be the day of salvation for them. Maybe others, Lord, are just struggling with compromise in their own life. Father, may they get nailed down that you're worth it and they don't want to compromise their faith for any reason or for any person, even though it may be a family member or a boss or someone in authority above them or over them. Father, may it be today that each of us determine Jesus is worth it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.